Welcome to another Crash Chords podcast. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. And I am Steve. Wow, you added an I am instead of an I am. I'm. Not an un. Not a contraction day. Very no, proper. No contractions today. 162 uh, is a proper We're not contractually obligated. Came up from with a joke, so who? Yeah. Um, <laughs> before we get into this week's album, I want to shout out a uh, congratulations to the 24-Hour Company. Um, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, they were doing a Kickstarter for... Um, their nationals program, and they met their goal this past Monday, as we are, as of when we are recording, and this is released. This previous Monday, they hit that goal um, to fund the nationals program, so it's very exciting. Um, there were some really cool rewards for for donating, and um, the benefit was a lot of fun. I got to go to it. I got to watch the documentary based on the 24-hour musicals called One Night Stand, which um, we, which I actually own, which is very fun and stressful to watch the process. Like you know how this documentary is going to end and that they make these plays and it's funny and they go they do well but it's so stressful to watch them go through the process because it's so aggravating and well there's also the fact that you're going to have war flashbacks being a part of it <laughs> right you're gonna have like oh my god i was up for so long kind of a thing going on um plus you got to meet some people yes so of course because of that i got to meet um uh, robin goldwasser which who is uh goldwasser Gold, oh, okay it's just you didn't enunciate <laughs> I got lazy halfway through. It's kind of like a lump of that in. Um, is a good friend of um, my wife, Sarah, and she is also the wife of um, uh, John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants, who I got to meet this past Monday. Very nice guy. Kind of froze up when I spoke to him, so I didn't bring up anything to do with the podcast, how much we love his music, how Not much the we love their that albums. In total, we spent about four hours with just, him and his work. Yeah. yeah. It just it didn't come up. Um, it, I, uh, truthfully, I just didn't want to burden him. You know, he was there for the benefit, and it was his night off, and he was relaxing, and so it didn't come up naturally. But if I meet him again, I will try and bring it up. I would love to share with him how much we do appreciate his work and how influential he's been to all of us. And if you want to hear us not freeze up when talking about John Flansburg and They Might Be Giants, then please revisit episodes 38 and 140. I do uh, want to revisit that that number thirty eight. I yeah. want I want to see. I want to hear us. Yeah. It still yeah. has one of the best live reactions. Uh, it still is probably our record if if we have our own little Guinness uh, Book of yeah. World Records of records. Get it because they're uh, albums. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but for like shortest uh, successive tracks. Yeah. yeah. Like okay, yes, occasionally we'll get like a one minute intro track in the middle of all of our albums, you know, but not like. 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 4 seconds. Yeah. I think I think the track there yeah. was, was like 4 seconds yeah. or something like that. Um, yeah, go listen to those episodes. They're good ones. But after this episode, finish listening to this one first. Yeah, just because we're here, here now. Um, <laughs> change your day. <laughs> also, to just briefly mention for all those who are also currently obsessing with it, I have mentioned on the podcast previously how much I enjoyed the musical Hamilton. The soundtrack was finally released recently, and I've been listening to it nonstop on iTunes. Um, it's a great show. Unfortunately, tickets are sold out to like October of next year. So I guess if you want to hear the show, it's pretty much sung and wrapped through. So there aren't a lot of non-musical parts. So most of the plot is on this two-hour soundtrack. So if you want to hear it, give it a listen. So by buying the album, you essentially buy a ticket. 
Yeah, you get to hear the show at least. I mean, the yeah. aesthetics and seeing it are also very awesome, but you can at least hear the songs, which are phenomenal, so I would highly recommend it. Hmm. Um, and so now we'll move on to my pick for this week. Um, it's Go a, for it. It, it is a, also a sort of return to form as far as an artist we have reviewed before. But a little differently. I've been a few of those lately. A few returns. I guess yeah. we're in a nostalgia phase here. I guess. We go through waves. Yes, we do. We have, we have phases. <laughs> anyway, episode 15 is the one you're referring to. Which I've got to throw out episode numbers, you know. Yes, which is the Ben Folds 5 and... Um, the Sound of the Life of the, the mind. mind. Which was their album that came out then that we reviewed. It was fairly new when we reviewed it. Um, which we all kind of raved about. We loved so Ben Folt has a new solo record, which I've been we've been all hearing murmurs of about how he's going to do concerto pieces and, and has been working on classical stuff. Well, this is the album that stemmed from that, and it's his solo album, So There, by Ben Folt. But he is featuring someone who's been on the podcast before. Is that, isn't that right, Steve? Oh? Well, yes, the musicians he's playing with. Oh, the music. Well, they have not technically appeared on the podcast, but I've referenced them on the podcast. Oh, okay. Um, He's working with two groups of people, and this is a very unique format uh, in, this, in this sort of strange structure. He's working with a chamber ensemble called Y Music and also the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. And both of them make an appearance on this album. Uh, the chamber ensemble is working with him almost exclusively through tracks uh, one through nine, and then finally... One through eight. One through eight, and then uh, the final three tracks are the concerto where he jumps over to the symphony orchestra this is not really commonly done but there is at least a, a trend and it's a trend i'm very very thankful of for modern uh indie artists working with classical structures and with uh classical session musicians and why music is the foremost ensemble of that department uh they have previously worked, and this is where I first heard of them, they previously worked with Annie Clark of St. Vincent and Shara Warden of My Brightest Diamond. I discovered both of those artists around the same exact time, and I, I bring them up usually together on the podcast, not because they necessarily have uh, similar styles. Maybe, you know, you'll enjoy, if you enjoy one, you might enjoy the other, but they're two completely separate musicians, and certainly the two albums we reviewed by them, which was... Uh, episode 86, St. Vincent self-titled, and episode 111's My Brightest Diamonds, This Is My Hand, they're really nothing alike. Right. And they did not bring in uh, the classical in the same exact way. Maybe perhaps uh, My Brightest Diamond a little bit more so, but St. Vincent was 100% pop. But they both have a very unique composing background, and so when they wanted to write something for Chamber, they went to Y Music because they're just so good, and they tend to be very pop-friendly, but they're mm -hmm. also extremely classically trained, and they just have this way of, of bringing something that may have been, you know, a more basic pop structure prior to it, uh, to life. They just, they, sure. they fill it out because they're about a uh, eight or nine musician ensemble, I mm -hmm. believe. Uh, you got everything from flutes to clarinets to, I think there's a piccolo in there. I think <laughs> there's a couple violins, a viola, cello, upright bass, and uh, pretty much every, like one of every instrument that you'd find in an orchestra. But uh, yeah, they, they've, had a, they've had a long history. And so they are involved in this project. And, of course, I've been hearing about this project for a while. Um, ben Foltz has appeared several times on the Nerdist podcast. Him and Chris Hardwick have kind of developed a friendship. And so he's mentioned this concerto several times because he's, he's talked about how it's stressful writing something he's never written before. This is a new, you know, he's dabbled in this stuff, but he's never actually sat down and written something like this. And well, so, you said there was a buzz uh, for this album, and I think the buzz was really more surrounding the concerto than the chamber pieces. Yes, exactly. And that, that's what I was really surprised about is the fact that he was doing both. Yeah. Um, normally, you know, like we did the only other case I think on this podcast where we got something full out orchestral was when we did 
either soundtracks or when we did maybe Serge Tankin's also or surprise, yeah. you know, Orca Symphony Number no. 1. But that was released as a self-contained object. It yeah. was four movements. There were no other tracks. That Vold's actually is making a transition over the course of this album. Well, and also I think it's interesting, though, like, as opposed to going for just a standard, not standard, but, you know, the Ben Folds's structure for Ben Folds 5 or for his solo stuff, this, he figured, well, if I'm going to do this concerto and I want to put it on an album, I'm not going to just tag it onto one of those. Let me create an album where it might fit a little more. It also may have something to do with the fact that, like, concertos tend to be about half the length of a symphony. Yeah. So a symphony, that's 45 minutes. That's an album. You know, yeah. you're not really going to... You're going to have an excessive album if you go beyond that. But a concerto, that would be kind of a, on the weak side. So maybe he thought, all right, this is going to be essentially his border stomp for this yeah. album. It's his three-part, you know, it's his trilogy following an album where he has lots of other things to say. Yeah. Um, why don't we get into it? So the first track of this album, uh, So There, is called Capable of Anything. And uh, this starts out in the the familiar territory of Ben Folds being on the a positive note emotionally. This is a very uplifting song. And it starts out with a very nice build. It's got this kind of sweet positivity to it that you're kind of immersed in almost immediately. Of course we're starting off with piano. I mean, well, if you like piano, I didn't Folds mention is the that. kind of guy. Well, you do have to mention I it. Know. Because not only is there piano, there's those rapid, very softly done bongo-oriented pieces in the background. The percussion is nice that it's so background in it, it really lets the piano shine right in the forefront. It's got this sort of raced nature to it. It, it. it feels like it's getting your heart rate pumping. And of course, this is... I mean, this would be done even if it was just been folded in the piano. But it really is helped, I believe, by these additional instruments. I mean, you have lots of these little flourishes in the background, particularly uh, violins and flutes. So it's like this call and response thing. It's really, really well done in terms of the hi-fi, you know, stereo product. I, I think this is something that also why music has really honed, is that it I, they... They have honed their chamber ensemble style specifically for the studio, and that's not something that, that every chamber ensemble can say. Normally, chamber ensembles, it's like, all right, well, they perform. It's a live performing venue, but they don't have a lot of uh, uh, studio experience. But in this case, they're just, they know all the tricks. Um, vocally, Ben Folds is up to his old tricks. Voice has got character, range. You know, he hits those falsettos. He's he he's not someone who kind of sticks to one singing style. He jumps around, which I I like because it adds a depth to his singing. Yes and no, because there's an umbrella there that is just so Ben Folds. You know, it's it's been True. there ever since the very beginning, ever since the '90s. Uh, I think John described it earlier as a a very sort of meek and and desperate vocal style like he's always just in the middle of something he's always feels like he's just uh, his voice is about to break on every single phrase it's a vulnerability that vulnerability i think he can project yeah. so well with his voice it's it's both at times he uses it for being sarcastic or satirical at, at other times it's just a pure emotional drop and one of those drops comes in this track when at the end of the chorus, he says, capable of anything, and the dropout, the, the sheer quivering he throws in his vocals is heart-wrenching. Well, what's also interesting about that moment is that it's actually doubled. It's him going high and him going low, and it adds this dichotomy in the chorus that I really enjoy. It kind of gives it this 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 base, this, this solidity that's really interesting. <laughs> what's great is right after that as well, there's a big pickup with the percussion. The, the first verse and chorus is very light on it, and you're really getting a lot of that sor uh, sorrowful kind of an idea that he's building in. It's, it's very reflective at the same time, but 
all the percussion, taking the backseat, and even the string work, the flute work, the stuff that usually you'd kind of use as a showcase, or more than just flourishes, more as like accents on the vocals, they're so background that you're just hearing him in the piano with a lot of texture. Yeah. Once that chorus happens, the post-chorus builds it up dramatically. And here's where I think the ensemble really shines, because once you go into that post-chorus slight instrumental piece, the buildup is perfect. Oh, the buildup is great. You're just feeling the heavy, like pop slant of the the chamber work just just shining through. This is this is a part of that 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 thing I was talking about earlier. And yeah, I believe it's around like two minutes forty seconds in. It just seems like he just it it goes crazy. And this thing was already pretty uh pretty revved up. It felt like an orchestra that was running. Um, and of course it's a, a sort of centrinetta that's running. But it's as of two forty, it just went crazy. It's it's it's. A lot of like violins just swooning in the left ear, but still with the flourishes, like you know, the flute flourishes in the right ear. I absolutely love the duality here. This is a this is just a, a pleasure from a mixing perspective. And it also this interlude is most is pretty much completely instrumental. And what I like is you get to really focus on the instruments at play here. You know, from the beginning of the song, there's a little bit of an instrumental in- intro, but more or less his vocals come in pretty quickly. What I like here is that his vocals take a step back and you get to enjoy the instrumentation that's here too, which was present in a lot of the song, but now it really builds out and, 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 ex- and expands and it builds on what the rest of the song was doing. Um, and I think that it's nice to get that moment in a Ben Fold song. I mean, you do in the past, but it's usually very piano focused. Here, it's like a cacophony of other stuff. All I'm thinking, I think, for the duration of this song is how much this guy must love his job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it, there's a lot of joy in this song, specifically, too, capable of anything. Yeah, and, and I, in fact, since you brought that up, like, just the first line here, what is this? It doesn't make much sense. <laughs> they sing it like a pop song, you're capable of anything. And I'm sure they meant you could be president, or you could just forgive me. But just starting off, what is this? What is this? When I, when I listened, I, I was almost thinking that same thought because yeah. of the fact that there is something that's almost removed from Ben Folds' regular style. Sure, you got the the vocals there, which are his usual thing. Sure, you got the piano. But he just went out. He went to town with all of these other elements that it just seems so much fuller. It, it almost rings of a completely different artist, mm-hmm. which I, I think is, is more of a benefit in this case because there was, you know, a Ben Folds sound that I think was very, very approachable throughout, I think, almost every single one of his albums. But there is that that idea that's like, well, maybe this is the extent of his work. Maybe this is, you know, it's the, it's the guy in a piano duo. That's it. That's, that's yeah. what you're going to get. And then there's a band in the background, but that's pretty much what you're going to expect from his discography, from his career. And then this album just kind of like, as of the first few seconds, blows us out of the water. And he's sort of narrating it. What is this? I yeah. don't even know what I'm creating. Like, right. Well, it really gets summed up very, very well in the outro of the lyrics, the, the last phrases that he puts in there. You are capable of anything, but you don't seem to think that you could fly so low or sink so high that you could ever love again or even try, that you could steal or cheat or kill or lie, but you might. It's that, that, that question of you can do anything. Now, he doesn't name the greatest things in the world, and it's does a good job of foreshadowing a lot of the, the darker themes that permeate this album. But at the same time, it does show that he's not above trying other things. I mean, he's, he's speaking to someone, but he's also, in a way, speaking about himself. I sure. like 
I like that little duality, that little insight into his mind that he's showcasing here. Absolutely. And from what I hear, uh, Y Music is a really, I mean, I kind of said this earlier, but they're a really great group to work with as far as just collaborations are concerned. Sure. I'm sure there was so much so much creative interplay going on in the process here. Uh, some in cases where he may have just like let them do their thing, but some cases where he may have wrote an idea out verbatim. That, that's why I just get the sense of absolute joy in the creative process. Like, I want to be in that studio. And you can find a lot of a lot of videos that were made of, of previous projects that Y Music has done where you can, they, they record the process and they're all very focused and intense. And it's, 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 it's really amazing to witness uh, classical session musicians just being in their element and to hear it and watch it. Well, I think that joy also lends back to what John said about vulnerability. I mean, when you're truly happy, like happiness happy, like at the peak of happiness, you're your most vulnerable because any terrible thing can ruin that. You're completely open. You're completely opening yourself up to the world around you. And so I think that that pure joy comes from that vulnerability he has. But which also brings me to one other little, like, sort of strange observation of Ben Fold's work, and that's the idea that very often, you know, we're talking about happy songs that have that little blink of sadness. I think maybe he, for the most part, is sort of entrenched. He's got a lot of say. He's got a lot of heartfelt things that he talks about. But then every once in a at the end of the day, I, f I feel like you might just feel good at the end of his works. Um, and this still kind of perpetuates that notion. You have, like, all right, there's there's a sad layer there. He talks about serious things. But you're left with just a more well-rounded, positive feeling, I think, uh, going out. Sure. Yeah. I mean, most of his songs, his early 90s stuff with Ben Folds 5 were, tend to be a little sadder. His biggest singles, of course, were. But, like, the the album we reviewed was mostly happier content with some moments of sadness. So I think also as you evolve in your career, you tend to look at the brighter side, depending on where you are in life. True. Um, that said, though, I think this was a fantastic start to an album. Um, from here we go to track two, Not a Fan. And what's interesting about this song on a whole is, so it structurally and sound-wise is very much a... Um, a lullaby. It has that lullaby feel. It is a beautiful piano intro. But as John will probably get into a little later, lyrically, not so much a lullaby. But but sound-wise, and just instrumentation to start off, it has a very sweet sound, beautiful piano work. When those pianos get the additional violin, though, it does adult it. It does make <laughs> it more mature because the piano's at a pressure, like an, a physical pressure to the song itself that makes it feel more... Mature, more full, more flush, not just talking to a child, but tr having a little bit of apprehension and trying to explain something. There's a, there's a lot of different ways you can actually take it, and the lyrics actually promote that as well. Well, I, I mean, take, considering that, I, I think there's something about while he's spending so much time in more of a like classically focused environment, I believe there are certain influences that he's drawing here. Um, the first track was a little bit more modern, but this track really reached e e further back in time because during the section where it really is just piano, it's very, very, just this sort of uh, sad uh, but simple piece and slow, it, it rang very, very close to a Schubert-like leader song almost. And Schubert was a you know early uh, 19th century composer who did a lot of slow stuff. And even some people at the time even considered his work almost like a little bit, a little bit trite. Like it didn't have the same, you know, depth and substance that other people did. Other musicians, other critics have obviously argued this. But this is what I kind of hear here, which is why I don't think it's really inappropriate to say it is sort of um, maybe begins as if it was a little immature. But if you peer through it, there is this maturity within it. Yeah, I mean, 
I think lullaby, all I mean by that is just kind of the dreamy quality that it has. It's not necessarily and for children. And the slow children. nature, like, yeah. like, like, you know, intermediate piano level playing. <laughs> well, the lyrics do start off as kind of childish and do become adult as we go along. It starts off, I'm not a fan, but I understand. If there is something that moves you that's not my cup of tea, it's part of what makes you beautiful to me. Now, that's an adult idea, but it's presented with a simplicity, a very basic, I love you, so I'm going to accept every aspect of you. Sure. But as the song goes along, the it, it, it changes. He gets a little more specific so that by the time we get towards the end, I'm not a fan and I wonder if you really are or does it make you feel smart? A boy band with glasses just minus the heart. He's shaking his ass and you call it art. I'll wait in the lobby, go meet him for real. We can all go to dinner, yeah, and I'll be the third wheel. So go get your t-shirt signed, fangirl. I like the pause he puts in there, fangirl. <laughs> I may or may not be here when you return. And then, according to the lyrical page, and I think it actually is there, it ends with, so fuck you. Yeah. But so warped and sort of like coming from another room, it's extremely muffled. He goes from kind of vulnerable but still lovey-dovey to to contrary, to sarcastic. And the music promotes this as we go the along. The music reflects like this sort of emotional roller coaster mm -hmm. in terms of just starting off so soft. And there are parts where it becomes almost steps away from Schubert. It becomes dreamy, but dreamy in the way of a more like early 20th century way, like a, a sort of an impressionist um, thing. But then at, at the times also like with a folk angle, like I even heard a little bit of uh, Bartok in there, you know, various crazy influences. And I just love the the heights that he reaches sometimes, just holding out that uh, high violin note. In fact, just before the, the lyrics that John read, the sort of the climax that this piece uh, reaches, he says the lines, Oh, there's always something from the start. You try to tell yourself it's only small, but it's not. And it's the very thing that later on will tear it all apart. And he slows down there and the violins just build up. Is this this moment of absolute, sort of absolute beauty and absolute tension all at the same time before he finally releases it and returns it to the birth? I, I, I love it. Those strings, when they first come in and, and promote that pressure I was talking about, the way they refine themselves does a lot to promote the the vulnerability and the sarcasm that he later builds into the song they they complement his vocals instead of just being a force of nature yeah i think that the song as a whole has an interesting evolution and it while it, it starts out seeming a little cheeky and and almost funny it does take kind of a serious turn and he i gets, he gets jaded as it goes along yeah. and i like that it it shows an evolution of character for, with a really beautiful everything else around it. Yeah, but it's it, very fluid at the same time. Like, frankly, even the early part, I don't think it ever came. It, there was cheekiness there and the idea that... that I, I, there was a strange sound in the very, very beginning of this track that sounded like a like a traffic in the background. It was like a slow hum or like a fan that was turned very, very low. And you know, the only uh, point at which you stop hearing it, or when it's really pronounced, actually, is around, like, 50 seconds in, um, just before it, it, it goes through the, the next verse. Uh, it's... like. I thought this was kind of like almost a break like between like an intro and the, and the content but yeah. it was just sort of like this continuation it was very fluid everything about this track was fluid yeah it, it definitely moved in a way the last track did too but this seemed more um, storytelling focused as well like there's a character here whether it's autobiographical or not there's a, a strong character here he's trying to test the heights and the lows that he can that he can do with the uh, chamber ensemble from here we go to track three track three of course is the title track so there um, this starts out very upbeat, 
sway worthy I, 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 I denoted makes you bob your head. This is it, more in line, I think, with his rock tracks. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that I recall from like his late '90s, early 2000s stuff. It's it, it's enhanced though, of course, by you know again the the chamber ensemble. You got the the big upright bass just plucking away. You have these little cello runs. It's very in, invigorating. I also really really like the tremolos in, um, in this track. The rapid attacks that the strings were doing, coupled with the kind of I, I would even liken it to uh, a more jazzy pickup as opposed to just purely rock oriented Perhaps. really did a lot to just take the the sweetness but the kind of slowness of not a fan and reinvigorate the listener it was a great pickup to go into and then it starts getting interrupted by a, a great piano bounce uh, deep cello kind yeah, of this a, is around, a combination this is around the two minute mark and this was one of my favorite segments that I had heard thus far. Because here's the thing, you have to take some of this stuff with a grain of salt at this point in the album. The idea that's like, all right, it is a common trend at this point for indie artists to start, you know, peering into classical because they, they want to be taken seriously. They're going to be taken seriously. We're going to, I'm going to write for for uh, classical forms and, you know, but, but still keep my personality at the same time. You just have to you have to wonder whether it is really them at heart. And I think that identity is usually what makes us a little skeptical about these kind of works, but always curious. It was at this point where I just realized he was completely owning it because it was Ben Folds in a way. It was Ben Folds' more um, more showy piano style, but it's like this is where I could hear some of his influences and where I was even brought maybe more to 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 realize that his influences perhaps... These influences had always been there throughout his work. Influences like Vince Guaraldi. It's actually interesting. This is the second week in a row that we're mentioning Vince Guaraldi. Uh, sort of came up last week. But, you know, of course, famous for writing the, the Peanuts theme. Sure. And some of the, the piano flourishes here are just incredibly similar to that. They're they're lively, uh, like Vince Guaraldi's. It's, it's very bright. But even the brightness of the piano is, of course, nothing that, that that's new to Ben Folds. In fact, that's been his preferred uh, piano tone ever since the very beginning. And then it goes into this uh, massive, uh, it almost feels like a departure, but it's just like it's lifting this track up into a new plane. Just following this piano segment, there's like this successive round of like triplets, 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 where every single instrument is completely joined in. And he's constantly going through all these different phases of chord changes and I, I don't even know how to describe this segment I almost don't know how to describe this segment with respect to the beginning part of the track that might be its only flaw as I wanted this piece as, sure. a, as a whole well I think the earlier part of the track also was didn't change up that much besides the the string stuff that you had mentioned it doesn't change up that much but once you get to this point this is something completely almost yeah. completely new it's not like two minutes is like a long time to no, sit but it was sure. more just in line with the earlier part of the album and then it's like here he really really started experimenting well what i like is both of these songs both so there and capable of anything ring of do it anyway from the ben folds album we reviewed this kind of upbeat positive you can do whatever you got to get it done kind of mentality and i think i like that strength that ben folds has either when he's doing something cheeky or when he's doing something uplifting he's- and this is still cheeky though yes. i mean when you start dissecting the lyrics the the choruses which i love are evolving choruses that's one of the things he likes to do uh, doesn't just repeat it outright it's sort of a two-part piece because the ending tends to remain the same. But the mm-hmm. first chorus, it's so well written, but I won't be sending it. And I will not forget you. There's nothing to forget. So there. <laughs> I love that. He, yeah. it's, it's cheeky, but he's also, 
it gives a sort of false uplifting towards the song itself, which I like. It's a nice gray area to experience. And I think that that's why the beginning of the song remained so stable. It was it was sort of a self-delusion, and that can have a numbing effect on a person. I think it's more about relishing and self-indifference, almost, or indifference in general. And that's kind of what this song is sort of about. I think maybe that's a better way to describe even what I was explaining earlier about, like, the, you know, the happiness within the sadness, you know, and try... It, it's really just more like he finds a way to say, well, that's what happened, yeah. you know? It's like, it's not good, it's not bad, this is how I feel, but, you know, it is almost like this, like, don't dwell nature of, of, the, of his music, which is strange, because actually some of it would come across as being very, you know, contemplative. Sure, But, but also... But also, like he's, it's just it's narrated as as if he were, you know, reading story tales, like or or fables. Yeah. You know, it feels fantastical. Like he can't believe his life. I don't know. Right. No, I I definitely get a sense of that. I mean, even the sadder stuff that he's done does have a sense of that as well. Almost well, like he's telling a story about something tragic. And it's that ending that I really think shows that the character is evolving, because not just that. I called it the rainfall effect, where everything was doing those triplets over and over and over and over again. Goes into that sort of like rapid, repetitive rising, but with slight different twangs to it over and over again, mm -hmm. which was like a great way to, to really end this piece. To go from kind of a dull, dreary, though extremely enjoyable beginning with to, to, to something that really does feel happy like a release the ending is a great release from this kind of sadness he built into it or maybe he was going down the rabbit hole we don't know <laughs> i'm willing to follow him at this point <laughs> sure all right let's go to track four then long way to go so this one is the first track so far on the album to start straight up with vocals first thing you hear is his smooth beautiful voice um <laughs> and so it, it 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 but from that point the, the way the piano kind of erupts and this kind of thud we get of, of bass and rhythm gives it a very either musical or like as in a Broadway musical or theatrical at least feel. There's a, a structure to the early part of the song and it persists through it that gives it this kind of almost scene work. It was theatrical, but it was also perhaps maybe as innocent as the second track. Mm -hmm. uh, it being, you know, a little bit more on the slower side, and just this 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 massive waltz that really just doesn't let up for the duration of the entire track. And maybe that's why it it, it feels so it feels so theatrical, as mm -hmm. if this was something that everyone had to coordinate with. Um, and it goes also in line more of his with his storytelling style. The heavy footfalls of the percussion were just so perfect. It, it was a great marriaging of, of thematic idea, musical idea, to the actual concept, long way to go. I mean, you're already promoting the idea of moving along, and the chorus, when it comes in, uh, gets to that repetitive long way to go, long way to go, that gets repeated six, seven times, almost in a droning sense. It does a, a well. There's something hypnotic nearly, about this song. Yeah, it's I almost mean, a, an anthemic kind of an idea going on. It's it's well. I don't know if anthemic is a good way because it's really more just like that 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 figuration itself that is is the theme. It's not really like I can't really ca recall the melody like really reaching out. It's just this sort of mind numbing. You know, one two three one two three for the duration. You know, really heavy emphasis in the one. Every instrument joins in there, and then these little like tick. Ticks the staccato on the two and three, and well, I, there's also this the, is used in a variety of of, of uh, I think 
uh, musicals, theater musicals. Well, one of the things that he does, Edge, is, is a marching snare drum on top of everything. Or not on top, in the background of everything else. Yeah. That is completely absent from the rest of the track, mm-hmm. which does a, a rallying kind of a cry to sort of build upon what the character uh, was experiencing in So There. This is something still tragic here about this, though. It makes me feel, you know, considering if you talk about the drummer, it makes me feel like I'm on, like, the Trail of Tears or something. <laughs> this is the way this, uh, you know, keep walking, long way to go, and you still have the title in your head. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I, he says long way to go, and then, of course, his little turn of phrase, his cheekiness steps in with the first line. Yeah, we just got five minutes. We got just five minutes till the man cuts a rope. And we pull away. As if something is really not a long way away at either, but it feels like an eternity. And the, the duration of this track is made to make you feel as if it's lasting forever. What I always liked about Ben Foltz, as far as lyric writing goes, is that he is clever in the construction of his lyrics. Things are rarely just haphazard. There's always an intention to most of his his lyrics. Not that lyric, most singers would, I guess, write haphazardly, but I think there's less poetry and more detail-oriented story writing here in his albums, which I I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. I think that also this track, it, it's kind of uplifting in a way that it kind of almost feels fanciful, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's it as uplifting as like capable of anything or, or so there because it is a little slower. So it's kind of uplifting in a contemplative kind of way, like thinking about things. Especially with the and the clock says, hey, do, 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 mm-hmm. do. I, I can't replicate the do do do's that they're doing, <laughs> but it's it's kind of freeing. Yeah, because it's that's a good way to put it. It's not the clock says a time or too late or anything like that. It, it's and the clock says hey, and and there's almost a chorus hey going on right yeah. there. It's how can you be freed though? This is like this is literally counting down every step of the way. Yeah, we just got three minutes, you know, till this all turns to mist, and later on, yeah, we just got one minute. <laughs> well, that's actually, I believe, counting down the song itself. I didn't look at the exact time steps, but the yeah. song is I about it's, I think it's close to five minutes long. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, another little thing I I like when he does things that are uh, related directly to the song and his lyrics and little uh, little tidbits like that mm-hmm. always make me chuckle. Sure, it's but, all lent to his cheekiness that we were talking about earlier. He does really make you feel like it's an eternity, though, and I say that in a positive sense here. There are little, there's lots of various tonal shifts throughout this, and also I really love this like the brass is I think more of a key uh, feature here. Brass steps in with this little glissando around like the three minute thirty mark and just steps in with this like slide that feels so dirty and in contrast with everything else that otherwise is very smooth and predictable and then here at this one moment it's just like all clenched up so he's always like teasing you in little moments with it's, things that don't match especially in his interludes he just loves throwing in little quirky bits to keep you on your toes to break up a lot of the uh, musical melodies and things like that the harmonies he's throwing into his songs mm-hmm. from here we go to phone in a pool in a pool. So already with the title, you're getting a sense of okay. There's there's a, there's going to be an interesting story to this, or at least some interesting narrative. Well, let's get to it. <laughs> I've thrown my phone in a pool in New Orleans. Found the love of my life again. Y'all know what I means, and I'll be back on your sofa in a puddle in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah. So, so, I mean, just that section of lyrics alone shows this dichotomy of freedom versus then crushing defeat. Well, kind of it's... in one. 
he knows he's just, he's setting up his heart to break again. Right. But I like the way he frames it. It's not in a typical way. Of course, the song starts, we skipped ahead a little bit, but the song starts with the piano vocal intro. They kind of come in together. It's not just straight vocals. Um, and then shortly after that, bringing in some shakers to and kind of this... give it an interesting, it's funny that it referenced New Orleans, but gives it kind of that almost kind of New Orleans kind of feel. It's very much reminiscent of Ben Folds 5. This one felt like an indie piano rock song. Very, very pop oriented. This was kind of what I expected on the album as a whole, even with all this orchestral leanings. If there was anything only like remotely Cajun in this track, though, maybe it was that sort of whiny guitar in the background. But even then, that's kind of a stretch. To be honest, this was really, I, I agree, much more just sort of a flat out pop structure. It's, it's more in line of Ben Fold's earlier work, which I have no problem with. Um, the piano solo was probably one of the most impressive parts of this song but it, it, it's fairly straightforward there's a lot of uh there's a lot of builds there's a lot of just like complete cuts but it's still just it feels like a ben folds track and then this is maybe this is only just strange because he's been doing something different for for like four tracks in a row and here he just eh, back to basics well, what i really felt is and as you're saying that it's a ben folds track is it's iconically ben folds like it's this is this is the thing we would expect from him. Has he been around enough that we can call his work iconic? I would say, <laughs> I so. Would say so. Hey, you know what? A slight diatribe, but someone recently in an article online referred to Corn, um, Smashing Pumpkins, and someone else as old people music, which really hurt me in my soul. Well, that's okay. I don't listen to old people music anymore. That's then. true, actually. Technically, I really don't listen to those bands either. There you go. So, and actually, that reminds me of the Jim Brewer bit where he's like, "Well, all the old metalheads are pretty much have become solid golden oldies, and yeah. he can't wait for the time in which all of the uh, metalheads are crowded together in the rec room of the of the nursing home." It's yeah. like, "All right, get together, we're gonna do some moshing." <laughs> it's, I mean, it's true. I mean, uh, ACDC is actually considered classic rock, which anyway, oh, moving, Green Day is considered classic rock. Getting back to the song, though. Even though it feels a little straightforward and predictable as far as because we know this structure and formula. Well, it's low key, yeah. But but that said, I don't think it's a bad thing. Like I like when someone's doing some new stuff and then rests back on what they're good at, but still do it well. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate about this. The song. fact that he's even doing this album uh, and approaching it is he's not resting on his laurels. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, him going back to something that's a little more familiar for this track, I accepted with open arms. But the funny it, thing, uh, just just to uh, there's, there's a thing that he does with his vocals that perhaps was a little bit different. I mean, he's always been a little bit more matter of fact and just kind of this down to earth singer. He he sings almost sometimes as if he's speaking. Uh, there's that very broken man inside, perhaps. <laughs> but then this track really takes it even easier. It, these very slurry vocals. He just kind of like stuffs it together and it's even the way he starts it off. Take it easy. Take it slow. Get on with the show. That's what I know. I woke up in a cold sweat last night. Seems what's been good for the music hasn't always been so good for the life. Which may very well indeed be like a on those uh, 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 paraphrasing of, of, of what I you know, noticed and his own self-awareness of the way in which his music evolves. Yeah, and I mean, as I said earlier, and I'll reference what I said moments ago, he, I don't think he does anything kind of willy-nilly when it comes to lyrics and storytelling. It's, it's all kind of, I think... Uh, methodically planned so yeah. I'm sure that was intentional I, I read some some interview uh, with him where he actually said that there were times in which his life was absolutely great but he wasn't like meeting his contractual obligations so it's like clearly there are there's always this going to be this split between whether like alright you could produce you know your your magnum opus but that doesn't necessarily mean your your life has reached its 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 penultimate state you right. know these things aren't directly correlating in almost in any capacity so I, I don't know I think it's just maybe a, a note on that topic at least 
So from here we go to track six, and the first featured artist uh, for this album is in this track. So it's called Yes Man, and it's featuring Rob Moose, who's a guitarist. Um, and um, I forgot to write down the bands he's been featured in, but um, but he's a guitarist who's featured on this track. Um, in the intro, we already get some wonderful horn and, and woodwind work. We had, had hints of horns and woodwinds in previous tracks, but before, for sure in this track, it's right up front that we get that. It's a straight up a longing, lost, somber kind of a combination of, of sounds, which is weird because it's being coupled with very accusatory lyrics. Why don't you tell me that I got fat? It's so easy I could see it now looking back as I empty one more round of smiling photographs. So many things you never mentioned to me. You didn't think I could listen. Do I come across so weak? I guess sometimes I am. He's got attitude there. It's not just, oh, woe is me. No, he's, he's starting an argument with somebody or at least throwing that accusatory gauntlet sure. in their face. I, there's, there's something about this that is maybe musically a little bit weak, though. Because even the way it starts with this, like, it almost sounded like a bugle call in the background. It's very, 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 very soft, almost like a woodsy uh, horn call. And then after that, you get just like one element after the other, laid in pretty rapid succession, but not, um, but but not uh, uh, antagonistically speaking. You get the woodwinds, and then you get the vocals, then you get the the violins, all pretty quickly. But it's still very just. It's strange because it doesn't actually make you tense. It really does just make you contemplative, and that—that's even more in his use of diminished chords uh, st throughout here. Normally, diminished chords would make you tense, but I, I instead I just feel I feel very contemplative throughout this entire thing. So I, I feel uh, like maybe there is some some weakness. I feel like he's reaching, that he's trying to reach for something at this point, and I really find that release in the chorus. Maybe you found a, 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 a attitude in those lyrics, but I, I still find the lyrics themselves. You know, whenever you have to ask somebody, do I come across so weak? I guess sometimes I am. That's just, eh, there's a lot of, lot of self-defeat in there. It does sound self-defeating and self-deprecating. I mean, it, the instrumentally, though, it does really have a very airy kind of slow, soothing feel, which I think is kind of a dichotomy for the lyrics, which kind of gives it, again, character and kind of depth. That's why I like the chorus. It's a good release, both lyrically and musically. Now you're so gone. Oh, I don't need a yes man and a song. Oh, why didn't you tell me about it? Very simple, very to the point. It is him, you know, pushing away what was being a, a drag in his life. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it even seems like there's an ode to that at some point, like around, uh, I think it was like 116 or something like that. The violin just goes on and off in this, just this pure uh, melody. It seemed to be pretty thin. It was a lot of focus on that violin, and it was almost like a Scheherazade influence or something. It was very gorgeous. Yeah, I think that the song as a whole feels very candid, even though it's very, very um, straightforward lyrics and very, you know, soothing instrumentals. It feels very candid, like he's speaking very matter-of-factly. Like, this is the one so far, I think, that's most easily to believe that's autobiographical because of just how candid it comes across uh, vocally, rather. From here, we probably would be moving on to the funniest song on the album by no means. Yeah, we have, we have a lot of... Uh... A lot of sad tracks, a lot of ones where he kind of addresses various things in his life. This this almost seems to be the the 
they might be giants equivalency of like an insert of like oh, a little aside. It's it's reminiscent of they might be giants or Jonathan Colton bands who do some fun stuff and funny stuff amidst some amidst other. Amidst their real their their work. Yet when you start picking apart the lyrics and reading what he says, it's kind of still in that depressing vein of what he's been building into the rest of the album. Oh, come so, on. so the track is <laughs> track seven is called F ten D A. Um, and what's very clever and funny about this song is he's essentially saying notes, and then the music around him is playing those notes. It's, yeah, it essentially starts off with, you know, F, and of course the instruments come in, they play the F. And then he says, in the A, well, they go in, they play the A. But what I really love about this is that they, they come in little sporadic doses. Like, they, they follow one instrument after the other, like, all right, here comes in the flute, all right, F, it did. You know, and then just, just like this little copycatting. Like he's mm-hmm. surrounded by copycatters. He says the F, and they're all just like parroting him, but in no particular order. Um, it's it's still you could tell there's like was some expert composition in here, or or maybe it was just a jam. I'd honestly I'd, expert composition only is just because I I feel that there was maybe some planning after the joke had been initially had. Like this happened somewhere between sessions where they were actually working on some other track on the album, and they were just goofing off, and then they they. They came up with this little song because they're they're he's tuning for someone you know he's helping them find their find their uh, their pitch and then after that they said like all right this is gonna be a real thing now and then they start coordinating all the little pieces and great moments uh, reach out like for instance you know F to A F to A and then all of a sudden you'll have like a really deep register note come in here I think it's like the bass clarinet or something and just to call and respond something that's so contrasting with the other side of the coin yeah. It's, it's, okay, here's the lyrics. I love them. F in the A, F in the A, with a D, and you, then you get that first kind of a moment. Yeah, like almost yeah. a fart That's sound. That's the D like, that was like, the moment. It's fart sound That was the humor. bass clarinet. Yeah. F in an A, with a D, with a D. F in an A, F in the A, with a D, with a D, with a big fat D. And heavy, heavy note again. But even even further along, once once you get that first repetition, then everything comes together. Everything that was searching finds what he was singing, and it's now paralleling him. Mm-hmm. And it goes with I love one of these phrases that he throws in there: "Aft in an A, aft in the A, with a D, a D, a big fat D, C, C, what it's like to be flat out." And then everything goes flat. I, I love. love that. I love that little joke. But that's just that. It's flat. See, see what Ow. it's like to be. And the B is played. I know. Then the flat, because you don't even have to say B flat, because you just said B, so you yeah. can play it. It's great. I, I mean, this is really, this is like 101 as far as a, as a music joke goes, but I'm surprised it hasn't been done. And you know, it, it's, it's just too awesome. And there's some repetitions with the song, but it's only about a minute and 59 seconds, I think, exactly, actually. And what I like is that this kind of humor, it's not its not like an on-the-nose... It is an on-the-nose joke, but it doesn't feel on-the-nose for Ben Folds. Like, I didn't expect this. I would have never expected this on the album. Though he's done funny things like this, like on the Ben Folds 5 album we reviewed, he, the song um, Draw a Crowd, where um, if the, the lyric is, if you can't draw a crowd, draw dicks on a wall. There you go. You know, so he's got a sense of humor. It's obvious, but it's just awesome to see it come out this way. He wrote a song about being screwed and then turned it into a joke. He actually played a joke. Yeah, like and the song just, being played is the joke. It's it's masterful to be able to actually personify that idea. 
But the song itself it is really about being screwed. He just uses the polite of instead of saying curse words, saying the letters, and right. then building upon that to make it use the being, song. It's by being screwed in whatever capacity you construe it. Right, yeah. but it's it's making a dirty joke using music. Which That's why I think actually is it's, it's pretty appropriate when you referenced uh, you know if you can't draw a crowd, draw dicks in a wall. This is his dick on the wall. Yeah, yeah. The, like the wall is this album, and this is the dick. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, and this is his. All of a sudden, none. I mean, it's it's completely repetitive, but in the best possible way of just following what he's saying. It's it very just keeps. Con- it's very concise. He can't even say it's repetitive. Like, all right, yeah, he goes through the the motions here. But then, to be honest, like, there's some amazing cons- consonants that that come in here exactly. toward the end, where uh, after a while they're just flat out playing the full on chords. There's one moment which I absolutely love in this track, where all of a sudden I they might be playing like. Every single one of the notes that had previously been previously been said to form this like really dissonant chord, this little tonal cluster. I'm not sure if that's exactly what was done, or if they maybe like stepped outside of the notes mentioned in the song to to form that particular chord. Or that it would make sense if that was what was going on there. But they all fused together in that one moment to like, you know, form this beautiful moment, the singularity of tension before it's it's you know it winds down at the end. Honestly, I have not been this intrigued of a marriage between lyrics and music since Hate the Villanelle off of They Might Be Giants Glean. I, I knew you would love this track. That's, that, it's, that's it's the thing. It's that same it sort of... It's impossible to not love this any track. Listener, but if any listeners of this podcast know, it's John gravitates toward the... Uh, toward the... Kooky. The kooky lyrics. Yes. It's not just kooky. It's just so intelligent. <laughs> you know, I bet, you know I, I, mean? I almost bet that he would be laughing right now, even to hear this. Well, it's 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 one He'd of be those. Like, yeah, it just a, did it in two minutes. <laughs> well, it's a perfect punchline. That's the whole thing. It's a perfect punchline. This is not something you can just run across in comedy. It's so well delivered and so just in the right zone for what it's trying to do. It's it's lighthearted and happy, yet he's still keeping with the theme, and he's going like in the po- both opposite directions that you need to to marry a really happy-go-lucky kind of a sound with a fairly depressing album no, or I, fa- fairly sad album. I don't mean to, to diminish this track. I think it's pretty wonderful. I think it serves its purpose. I, I like tracks that can t- step outside of themselves for a moment. That's why I also loved, you know, Disclosure back in uh, God Sticks and Visits Conundrum, the little jazz piano aside, you it know. It just that seems so foreign. seems so foreign, but it, I don't know. It puts things in perspective, and, and before you can start to sort of, you know, bring back your themes because it's kind of the way that the human brain works we we're not all linear we need to take those little five minute breaks where we're just absolutely stupid before we can go back doing something genius the story of the human spirit i'm just saying (laughs) i got nothing else so let's move on to the next track einstein would agree so track eight is the final track before we get to the concertos and this is called i'm not the man featuring alicia witt which is um, ben fold's girlfriend um she is also a talented singer songwriter and actress and um, it was cool that they've done a track together. I don't know that they have in the past. So if they did yell at me, Internet, but I don't think they have. So it's cool to see them working together here. Um, it starts with these kind of sweeping, the sweeping sound led by vocals, which I really liked. It had this very heartfelt, emo- emotional like feel to it, which, I mean, if we remember the final track of uh, the Ben Folds 5 album, also had that kind of a feeling. So he likes to conclude on the sadder side, even though this is not actually the end of the album, it's the end of the lyric-y stuff. I'm actually amazed at just, you know, being that he returned to the heart-wrenching stuff, how he was able to, you know, following the previous track, just almost completely 
make you forget that it existed a little bit as if he was just like an intermission that yeah. you can kind of you know just edit out of your head and perceive that the the album was just continuing along without you feeling like oh it was a long time i don't even remember what happened you yeah it doesn't continue. feel disconnected like usually when there's a break in kind of an emotional stroke of an album you know with something funny like that you feel disconnected but i don't really feel disconnected yeah. at this point and i think that's pretty masterful well mm-hmm. it's in, in a lot of ways it's another one of those lonely songs that he likes to produce but here's a lot fuller and it's directly feeding off of track seven's full sound at the end of it yeah i think that does a great job of connecting the the two pieces together while keeping them as separate ideas being so filled from the beginning it was also so dynamic in his vocals which is something i i guess i was starting to miss it, it's probably the most dynamic track because his range is really being put to the test especially when he starts going into the chorus He's hitting a, a, a higher falsetto than I think I've really heard on this album, yet coming from a much lower pace and really rapidly able to change from one to the other in a span of just a couple of words. Yeah, this is a track that I, I felt... Uh, maybe I was even more into the music here, perhaps, than the the the, the lyrics, but the, the chorus itself is really quite gorgeous. I feel like every chord just had so much weight in this track every single chord change was just so impactful it makes you feel you know the the all the all the sad parts i, I refer all the to dark this, places i refer to this as a piano rock slow jam like you know he's he's well known for doing some piano rock as well as indie rock and and this is the much slower side beautiful side but i also want to talk about vocally a little bit before we get to the lyrics which i'm sure john will yes. i want to talk about the actual singing so um, of course, in the choruses, you get these beautiful harmonies between Alicia Witt and Ben Folds, and they just, the, the dynamics between the two really make it ring loud. Even though neither of them are singing particularly loudly, it's very eased into, it gives this kind of full sound that's just stunning. Yeah, no, it was definitely beautiful. I, I, I just feel so drawn to the choruses in this particular segment that maybe some of the other parts were a little bit just, you know, I'm floating along. Uh, but it's it's the chorus, it's the chorus and the chords, you know, in that one moment where I just feel like every single every every piano chord just this I don't know it's weighted. I, it's, that's all I the only way I can. It describe does this have track. a it does feel kind of heavy. I mean, and he's done this before, and, and I even think, his vocals sort of like falling down with the chords as well. One thing I've always said is that his heavy tracks are the quickest to bring me to tears, just because. He's very emotionally invested in the way he sings. John talks about that vulnerability, and you really feel, feel it. I love referencing the song Brick he does, because the when he sings in the chorus, and I'm a brick and I'm sinking slowly, like it, you feel the weight of that line in that, old, in that older song from the 90s. The same thing in songs like this. You really feel the weight of the verses and the choruses. He really, like goes, he really goes deep. There could be fewer days ahead than gone, and all I've spent are long since on my way. To learn that nothing comes for free. I have a lot of time to waste. I wrote the lines upon my face, chasing down the shots they bought for me. And I'm not the man, I'm not the man, I'm not the man, but I used to be. And then they go into a a heavier duet between the two with the line, I used to be my father's son, and then they alternate, and I love the way they do it. I used to be number one. I used to be paper and pencil. I used to be endless potential. I used to be heaven and earth. I used to be my net worth. I used to be one public drunken moment. I used to be high paid and low rent. I used to be a man on a mission. My best chart position. The man in the mirror. You're proud of your cure, a new day, a new town. Your racehorse, your cash cow. 
till I let you all down. No, I want to be, I want to be, I just want to be. And that finality of that line, I just want to be, was so perfectly delivered. So much regret in this track. (laughs) What I think also this is kind of uh, referring to is, I know that that he said many times there's a lot of stress in writing the concerto and and putting himself out there in this new way. And it feels like this song is kind of reflecting on like those darkest moments of stress and worry about your own career, about your own mortality, about your own life cycle as a performer. And it all feels like it's here. And so to do such a touching song with his girlfriend also, I think just adds even more heaviness to this track, which makes it truly beautiful. From there we do go to the the said concerto. So Uh, track 9, 10, and 11 are all concerto for piano and orchestra, and then there's three movements. Movements 1, 2, and 3. Track 9 is movement 1. And it starts very serious and intense. Like, we get right into it. He doesn't ease us into this. This this piece. Yeah, it, this is really in many ways. In many ways, even though I called uh, you know F F ten D A like the sort of intermission, it's really you got to take this as a separate entity, kind of um, the the concerto that is from the from the rest of the album. It's almost like you could treat that as the intermission, and then here yeah. starts sort of a whole separate work that you're just getting as a. Um, Bonus tracks, almost. I don't want to say bonus tracks because there's just so much work that oh, went sure, into it. You can't call it a bonus track. It's just. It's like a, it could have been it's a another, double album. It's another side of him. And it is well set up, though, by using all of these, all the instrumentation he had in the first eight tracks. So you're not thrown for a loop. It's not like a heavy rock album that all of a sudden became a concerto. It, you're kind of eased into it. Oh, I don't know if eased into it is really the words I want to use. There's something very, very just, like, confrontational about this. Um, as of the beginning, first of all, it sounds very cinematic, but it doesn't even seem like it's, like, the overture. It doesn't seem like this is the... I feel like I've just been dropped into the middle of the movie, and this is already sort of a, a, a pivotal scene. And then, you know, 40 seconds in, he takes some really, really harsh turns. It's He starts getting pretty wonky, and that's... I mean, that's the impolite way to say it, because to be honest, this is still very intricately composed. I think it's very fun. It's just, it's wonky. I don't know. I don't, I don't. Well, it's hard to follow some of these shifts. Let's show how wonky it is up front before we describe each part. Go for it. Tell me how many, and count, how many time changes are there in the first three, what is it, three, four minutes? Three minutes. I mean, I noted it roughly like six different, uh, like, decisive shifts in tone uh that's a lot 110 there's another ship uh around like one minute 25 the piano is, is is a little more dominant it starts getting very very threatening here and then you know very soon after that like one minute 47 it breaks out into this very heavy like like gershwin influenced and that this this is something i absolutely adore you know just, just speaking of, of gershwin in, gershwin influence i think i also heard that maybe have been some uh uh, Aaron Copland influence on this track, but I hear Gershwin more than anything, and I don't hear a lot of people uh, directly following in the footsteps of George Gershwin. He just seems so untouch- untouchable, but yet he was still able to do it here. It's very, it's very jazzy, and it seems very uplifting at this point. But this is following the the threatening nature of of a minute twenty five, and then uh, after that, around like two minutes eight seconds, it's all of a sudden this swooning romantic love theme, just like. Sit with that for a while, please. I mean, sit with one of these things. That, that was mainly my only issue at this point, is that I think I, I would have loved any of these individual segments uh, alone, but, you know, it almost seems like like an answer to the kind of, uh, uh, you know, ADD that I think a lot of people traditionally have when it comes to classical orchestration. And this is almost like, 
it's almost going too far in the other direction. Like, don't be afraid to sit with some of these things. And I think maybe some of that may may come from, you know, being a, a composer who doesn't really make this, like, the, the signifying part of his career, but more just like, you know, it's his new project, and he's composing for all these different instruments. We're not working with Y Music anymore. This is with the Nashville, uh, the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. And so it's just so many things he has to keep track of, and I feel like he becomes so in love with, with one of these ideas and puts so much time and thought into it but the amount of effort, you know, might be, you know, hours and hours and hours just for a few seconds of music. And that's, uh, the, the payoff is never great when you're working on that large scale. So you, you start wanting to move it along, move it along. Unfortunately, from a listener's perspective, it can be a little bit scatterbrained. I mean, it does feel a little schizophrenic, but then we do get to a point at about three minutes and 40 seconds where it settles down a little bit. Yes. Um, you compared it to kind of feeling like we're in... Old Paris, you know, in Paris. I said, I absolutely, I said, as of three no, minutes, no. 45 seconds, I was loving this track. It was it was an old Paris. I was referencing Italy. I mean, that's he, what I hear. He I'm heard, hearing He hears Venice. Venice, but he's Italian, and, and I So Paris, he doesn't count. Exactly. Um. It's, but it, it comes off as like a beautiful place with startling moments of clarity. That's the only yeah. way I can really describe it. And it's, a, it's a, for me, that, that pure visualization of just going around a bend and seeing something that's just beautiful. Well, it's a full, I mean, as of 3 minutes 45 seconds, you do have to remember this is a concerto, and the format of a concerto is, of course, you have the, the signifying piece, the, the piece that has the, uh, the instrument, rather, that, that the spot where the spotlight is on, and that's the piano. So, of course, the piano is going to be pretty dominant throughout, um, but, you know, it, it, it expands, it retracts in various places. Sometimes it just flat out yields to, uh, to the orchestra, and then sometimes it just completely takes over. Uh, it was present pretty fluidly like i said it was you know it had that very threatening segment around like a minute 25 but then you know at this point it's just so jazzy it feels more like a nightclub setting than anything else uh so it kind of took me out of the piece a little bit but i think in a good way because he just it was clear he was taking his time with this segment um he also takes his time with the segment that follows too like now we're getting him he's sitting a little more in what he's doing at this point yeah you get like a minute 15 with that jazzy thing and then there's this big culmination where you get like the real true concerto work where the the piano is spotlighted but everything else is just swirling around it and it is very very majestic very Mm -hmm. uh i absolutely love the five minute mark i think it was one of my favorite parts of the piece uh maybe Second only to the jazz, or maybe maybe even first amongst the jazz. I don't know. Uh, it, that I think that's where you want to sit most with this piece. Is that as we get closer to the center, you get you you feel like you're closer to home, and you feel like he reached a stride. Well, it also feels like a kind of eye of the storm. Like everything else was so cacophonous, and now sure. right in the middle, pretty much smack in the middle, it gets more eye of the storm, calm areas. You said majestic, and you get this kind of chance to breathe in this kind of. Uh, openness, and then it goes into it go, well, it another further, alternating kind of a segment that we were getting in the beginning, back and forth it, between ideas. Well, there's a weird thing because, to be honest, only just a little bit after the the big majestic segment, there's like another part that's very, you know, I want to say he was trying to drag out that eye of the storm feel, but even like make it sparser, you know, that whole. The bass, and I felt like maybe there was even like a gong in the background fused together just to do this like, you know, creepy, evil thing lurking in the background. It did slow and dark again. And then and then that slow and dark And part, that's amidst like a pitter-patter that didn't even sound like it was coming from instruments themselves. You know, just 
like you're in a haunted house or something. I don't know. Right. And then from there, it goes into a very kind of almost waltzy feeling thing. Like it, it did It's not feel, a waltzy feeling. It was it a waltz. waltz. Yeah. And it just it seemed from this darkness they were building, it goes into this kind of waltz. It still had a little bit of the creepiness, but not really much at that point. It was still dark, but it, it waltz just livened it up a little bit more than I think he may have been really wanting for that part. That that's that might be my critique here. It's it's a little bit brighter than I think he was trying to go for as an overall effect on the song, on the piece. Yeah, I I, I am I am Ben Folds by no stretch, but I, this reminds me a little bit of my uh, my senior project uh, from music theory and comp and how I you know it's not something that I it. Only in terms of the way in which it's just, it had to, I, you try to push in everything that you like, and you try to just, you know, make it this, this, this grand thing, but sometimes I feel like the transitions weren't there, and it was one of my problems. I think this is much, much better done, but it's still on the grander scale. I think it might suffer from some of the same issues. I feel like he was just a little bit, a little bit too ambitious with this in terms of his separate ideas. I feel like some more work could have been uh, applied to stretching out each individual segment. I still thought it was uh, invigorating. And each little segment was just beautiful. It, it, they all have their own positives. It could have been its own track in many it, ways. Yeah, It could have been a 10-minute a, a piece, could have become a 40-minute symphony, uh, like through all the movements that we're going through. But because the movements are so rapid fire i'm really lost by the end of the of the track i really don't know where we started you, where you home base of, was you, yeah exactly you it's kind of forget easy. the theme for me like being within the piece i was very engaged and i was very into it but i find myself once the piece is over and moving on to the next when we move on to the next track like i find myself forgetting what i was in besides yeah. those big like the five minute mark the three minute 40 mark the six minute and 30 mark like these big shifts that sit for a while those i tend to remember but the ones that are just shot to shot to shot of like these different clips or the back and forth nature of them themselves it's just I got lost I think I got you know it, it didn't it wasn't it, it was not memorable but not because there was anything wrong with it per se in the quality it was, it was just unmemorable because it was so rapid fire I had trouble grasping at it yeah. and retaining it I think this is where it's appropriate to maybe reference that that uh what we encountered back with Serge Tankin's Orca in yeah. episode 78, and that's, um, you know, we, we had a lot of these problems as we were going through. I think he was trying to cover a lot of bases in the course of the, the four movements of his symphony. Um, but I, I will say this for Ben Folds' work. I think in each individual segment, I was enjoying it a lot more than I did uh, that Serge Tankin thing. I oh, think, I, think, I would agree. I think Serge Tankin was fighting more with, with extending his identity to the orchestra, and I believe Ben Folds was able to do that. I just think that he did it too many times in too many, in too many fashions. That might be its like double-edged sword of this piece, because yeah. each part was very engaging. So you're almost like required to forget what just happened, otherwise you're just not going to have enough space to comprehend it in the moment. Mm -hmm. That might be the biggest issue with the track itself, yeah. which is just saying you have too many good ideas in one spot. This is not, I mean, this is not a terrible problem to have. It's not a terrible problem, but it's still a bit of a problem. Yep. 
that said, of course, we are only at movement one, because yes. it's a concerto, so this is going to take a while to talk about. Let's go to movement two, uh, which coincides with track ten. This one starts a lot darker. This feels more grave. And it's I think a, what really a adds... tolling kind of effect. This what felt really... like it was actually born out of that middle segment of the first track. And of course, to have, be a concerto, you have to have some reference material, and this is the thing that I feel like was pulled from around like that five minute, fifty-three second of the, of the, uh, of the first movement, it feels like it was pulling from that, where everything is much slower. You have the, the, the bass just very light in the background with the sort of like thump, 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 you know, just creeping along again. But you have another element here that I think lays it on even thicker than it did in the first movement, and that's this very, very soft tremolo, just sort of creating a rumble in the background. Because normally when you have tremolos, like in violins or, or you know, in your entire string section, those tremolos would serve to keep you very, very tense, and they would usually be loud, but if you do it softly, it can create this whole different emotion. Instead, all of a sudden, it's just like something slowly creeping up in the background, but it doesn't even really get louder. It just stays at that consistent level, like a very removed threat almost, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, fun, it's not central to your, your, where you are now. It creates an empty kind of a feeling in that rumble, almost like the addition of the sound makes it emptier because it it doesn't show movement towards or away from something. It just is an expanse at that point. Yeah. But at this point, I mean, the first movement was over 10 minutes. This one's closer to five. And he's taking his time with this one, sitting in a very specific setting, which I like. It gives us something to kind of hold on to and latch on to that makes it more memorable because it's less rapid fire. And it made the piano more memorable as a result, rather than it's just kind of like poking through in various intervals. Instead, when, when the piano enters in, it really becomes the central figure uh, during the piano solos. That, that Gershwin influence is, is just as strong, if not even maybe stronger, because Gershwin wasn't all Rhapsody in Blue. He had a lot of really lights. In fact, actually, many parts of Rhapsody in Blue were very, very light, very delicate, very sweet, um, and very heavily influenced from, like, you know, stuff in his contemporary of his contemporaries or 20 years earlier like the impressionist music of Debussy which is where I really started to hear this uh in this track um in this movement more so than the first it builds a very solid background as we go along as well without out shining the very light piano work that gets interspersed the the piano remains a very central character even when it's quiet and it's hard to do that this is some expert mixing on that part I don't know if the lines were taken separately, but the orchestra as it's playing is doing a hell of a job making sure that everything is staying very, very calm when it needs to be calm. And that's something that's hard to pull off. It's also extremely noticeable when this voice that the piano is, is creating becomes absent. Having that, that sort of quiet where the piano used to be makes it very, very noticeable. Yeah. Even, you know... It's just in terms of the style once more, this is like an amalgamation of all my favorite composers here. Just like, you know, wrapped up with the addition of Ben Folds himself. I even thought I heard like a little bit of John Williams in here at times, you know, sure. specifically in the strings, maybe like a little bit deeper into this movement. Um, but it just, it came across so, so strong. And of course the point of, of a concerto is to, to highlight the piano and it has its moments, but this, it was just... It was just more tasteful, I think, in this movement. Yeah, it just, it seemed more, I mean, it was more organized, I think, this movement, for better or worse. I mean, for all the things that we had, the gripes we had with the first movement, I feel like the 
the first movement, while it felt kind of scatterbrained, we still enjoyed it. And we want to make that clear. Here, I think I just, for me personally, I was able to latch on to more. I tend to get lost in instrumental pieces, so this had more of a straight through line flow. I don't have, I don't tend to get lost in instrumental pieces. This is actually something where I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to maybe even sometimes be more invested. Right. Uh, but it's still get, it's just like anything else. Really, the, the, the thing is a pop structure has a tendency to keep things very, very tight just by nature. Right, and right. then when you move into an instrumental piece, and you want to be, uh, you want to be a little bit more more outlandish, you're you're inevitably going to kind of walk that line. But I got to give you credit because you're probably going to stumble upon something, uh, you know, world changing. And in the next movement, we really get Ben Folds playing a concerto as opposed to him creating a concerto so- because the piano is him, a very iconic idea for him. In track 11, movement number three, the piano work feels very Ben Folds. It, it just, the way it builds and the sense of urgency feels like the way Ben plays. And the, so... The rapid nature of it, the varied nature of it, mm-hmm. and the almost scatterbrains pieces that he throws in there, yet it doesn't lose the main thread of the of the piece. It, it, it stays solid throughout. The other instruments end up just being beautiful color or beautiful paralleling around the piano. It did kind of like bring elements of the first movement to fruition, like in a very strong way, because there was a lot of rapid flourishes. Um, it's strange that in the beginning of this of this uh, this track of this movement, I felt like it was like a strange mix of like church bells on Sunday. This very like you know s- scattered but consonant sound, and then it also felt you know, tense simultaneously. It was weird, like it was like also a battle was going on and somehow everything just just kind of like let loose. But what really separated this, I think, from the first two is the addition of a, what I believe was a, a, a guitar, uh, just an electric guitar, I think, maybe doubled with the piano. I don't know that for sure. It could have been like, you know, an electric violin or an electric, you know, some other uh, classical instrument, you know, um, patched through to make it sound as if it was... Uh, as if it was electric, but it sounded, it had this like funk edge. It was very stuttered, very staccato, and it, it was pretty neat. I, I actually liked that as, a, as an element. I hadn't really heard that before anywhere. I mean, yeah, we can say things like, well, Hans Zimmer likes to use guitar in his orchestral pieces, but you know, it's always the same all the time. This yeah. is a different approach. And it even goes into, I believe, Matt said, a zany piano. I almost well, liken it to a circus piece. So it comes a little later, and what, what that gives way to is some even more interesting piano accents. Like, there's a moment where we get a series of three notes that literally sound almost identical to uh, parts of uh, Beethoven pieces. You know, just da 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 It has that kind of flow, I think it was actually, and it's strange, actually, because really... I think what, what what brought that to mind was perhaps that guitar sound, yeah. which means that you maybe weren't hearing like the original Beethoven piece, but you were hearing that like funk rendition that was the done disco, back in the seventies. Which was, yeah. uh, I think, Walter Murphy. Okay. Yeah, and it did have a more modern feel, which. I mean, as a whole, I think because this part was more piano-focused, almost as if the piano was leading the rest of the track, it was kind of like the other instruments were lining up behind the piano in a conga line of musical instrumental goodness. Yeah, the piano was was definitely, like you said, leading, but at points, other things were overtaking it. When certain sections with the strings or the flutes, they would actually start playing what he's about to play uh, right before it happens. And it was weird because it, it, it's, it's almost like the piano was just trying to infuse something into everything else and succeeds. By the end of the track, it truly succeeds in creating something that 
for all the, the, the kind of dour nature we had in the rest of the album, this does a great job of, of leaving me not just hopeful, but kind of happy as well. It, it does le- end on a good note, uh, like a, an up note. And what's really <laughs> funny is the way it wraps up very nicely. As Steve pointed out, feel very cartoony-like. Porky Pig popping through the yeah, that's all, folks. Kind of just pew. That's it. Yeah, it, it it's just it, it seems not like silly. certainly not a Beethoven ending. There's no like prolonged build here, you know. Da 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 da. You know, it's just bleh. It's, it's the, just, that's that is the end of the short. Yeah, it just kind of ends, but I, I like that. I think it's interesting the arc of this record. This the arc that this record takes, considering the way the concerto kind of ends as a whole piece. It's a strange way of not taking himself so seriously, considering mm-hmm. we got some very weighted stuff earlier on the album, and now the concerto. It's just like, no, I've said my piece. Well, you can't. You kind of got to remember part two, movement two was definitely a weightier section, and there were sections of movement one that were. Very weighty, very dark, a mm. little dour. Even with the beauty thrown in, this honestly, it's 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 the Ben Folds way of ending things. Just make it happy towards the end. Bring out some life. Like he doesn't like leaving us on a dour note. Even when he ends with a dour song, they tend they seem to tend to be more uplifting in uh, their musical nature. All right, I guess we're gonna be wrapping up. And uh, I'll take first? Yeah, you go ahead. Ben Folds is easily probably my favorite pianist. Purely because he... (laughs) Pianist. Well, he's... Yeah, thanks, guys. He, He likes to infuse so many different styles with his piano work. A little bit of jazz, a little bit of rock and roll, a little bit of classic nature, this, that, and the other thing. He throws all these different curveballs together. And he, then at the end, he just ends up being Ben Folds. Exactly. His his identity is the piano, and we get some great piano work throughout the album. That's one of the coolest aspects. It was the lead throughout so many different parts. He does an incredible job of working with some interesting tools in the pop nature. We've heard stuff kind of like this, and I've heard personally a lot of pop infusion of classical instruments or classical instrumentation. Here, he does keep it fresh in a lot of ways that we I didn't really expect because I kind of, when I saw chamber pop as the tagline or the genre for this album, I was expecting a lot more pop influences. I was expecting a lot more repetition, and we got a little bit of it here and there. But as a whole, it was a great infusion of a lot of different genres thrown together. Or rather, a lot of different ideas from genres, because there's really nothing I could say besides it's Ben Folds. I mean, there is a, a definition, but you can't just say pop or classical or indie or what have you. All that, there is a problem with having this concerto in addition to the album. The concerto is an odd 20 minutes in a 50-minute album when you compare the two together. Yes, I think the nature of the album itself prepared me for the concerto, but I don't see anything linking the two together musically, and that's a huge issue. It's it's two-thirds of the way through, we're getting a completely different arc on the album. That breaks it up dramatically for me. Now that said, tracks one through eight were nicely concise, song-wise. I was never really bored. I was always just interested in what he was doing, even when it was repetitive. 
and the concerto was really nice in that there was a lot of great ideas, but at the end of the day, I think he, he only really cleaned it up in the second and third movement as opposed to the first. So that said, I'm going to give him a 4.5. It's great. There's a lot of great things here, but there's a lot of, of just not knowing where you're going with some of these parts that, that bothers me. This album is strange because on one hand, I think I went into this thinking every step of the way that it was nothing if not fascinating, that to hear a style that I am otherwise very, very familiar and comfortable with, that being Benfold style, and then just hearing it contorted and fused with something else that I also really love. In fact, several other things that I really, really love. I mean, there was really more in common in many ways. Just going back to what you said, John, about the, the, the pop leanings of this album. There was, it was pop in the way that My Brightest Diamond is still pop and that Owen Palette is still pop. You know, other prominent chamber pop, whatever the hell that is, uh, <laughs> chamber pop uh, stars. It's, it's becoming a more common trend now, and I do, I do really like it. I, I, don't, I don't want this to become something that's just like a fad of the, of the early, tw- you know, 20 teens, really, or the late 2000s. I think, I think it's something that has an even greater future than where it's at currently. I find each and every example of it to be probably the most fresh thing that is out there right now. That's that's like almost worth a five in itself, which is why I was almost like toying around with that idea. But there are various little things that just hold me back in, in, in the subtlest of ways. Identity is not really the issue. Normally that would be the issue when you get a work like this. It's like, oh, well, when we were looking at Serge Tankin, it's like, is it Serge Tankin? Or, or is it even like a, you know, a... It, can this symphony hold up against other works? I actually think this concerto maybe could hold up with a lot of other concertos out there. I'm not a big concerto guy, to be honest. <laughs> I honestly think that there's something about the concerto work that can come across, even going back to like some of the most prominent composers, as the tackier side of what they do, because there's the, the soloist, and it's almost more about the pomp than it is about the music, you know, everyone circling around the piano. That's not what's really going on here, though. I think, actually, this was a lot more fluid. It had different problems, and the different problems we mainly outlined in that first movement. Uh, but getting back to the, the, the chamber pop style, which is the dominant focus of this album, and I think maybe in, in some ways could be considered the, the focus, the content, like, yeah, of course we're going to count the concerto, but it's not going to count, like, so far forward or so far against this album because I can kind of treat it as a separate entity. The fact that he includes that as as a bonus. Oh, yeah, he, he wrote one of the most challenging forms of music as a bonus. That's not... Normally, this is just, like, a little side thing, but this was... This guy's done his research. This guy has, has honed his style and obviously sought out the best performers to... Uh, the best musicians, the best orchestras and symphonietas to go about it. It's so ambitious, and yet I, I, it almost makes me feel so so sleazy in not just, like, doling out the 5 or, or maybe even the 4.9 just to be so particular. Right? You know, it's the time, times where I really hate just being critical. But it's, it's, it's not everything. Sometimes fluidity really is... is and... and what you take away from it is the most important thing. This might be the most complex work, I think, of the year. I, oh, I, I would agree. I think maybe even more complex than, than uh, 
you know, Gonsticks or Banda Magdas. Like, it, they were still sticking with pop in many ways, and they were sticking with what they know. Ben Folds went outside of, completely of, of what he knows. Yeah, sure, he probably has, like, classical influence, and she's a, he's a well-rounded musician, but he'd never released anything on this scale before. Like, he's a musician for 20 years in the making that is still on the up and the up, on the up and up, and that's what we're always looking for. That in itself has got to be worth a lot. But I'm just holding this back for the the following reasons. Number one, the emotional takeaway of this album, I feel, is completely wrapped up in the moments. I feel so strongly towards specific moments on this album, perhaps more than I do entire tracks. Entire tracks, I'm left with, and that kind of leads me to number two, more of the idea of just experimentation. Expert experimentation, but experimentation. I feel like it, it's, it's just not quite as focused or pivotal, and sometimes it just flows along and you get to witness the, the, his, his, his style, you get to witness his, his, his skills as a composer, maybe more than you get to be completely uh, immersed in the work. That's a, that's a really, really tricky one, because I only feel that way in, in, in doses, in, in doses for various stretches of time, which is why I'm not just, I'm not taking this down much. I'm just saying that, you know, as far as the perfect album, which is, we've already claimed, it's almost impossible to reach, I think it's worth maybe, in this case, a four, a point three. I think this is a 4.7 work. All right. I'm just not. I I want to be more exhilarated in this album on 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 a fluid like track by track basis. Fun fact: that's exactly what you gave his last work. Is it really? Yeah. Because I was looking at those earlier, obviously. Because there's comparisons. Duh. I mean, it's the same artist. So no, I, I think I think maybe that's appropriate. I feel like maybe that was a tighter work working with you know what he knows. Right. But this, you know, you got to balance out. Maybe it's not as tight, but it's so much more ambitious. And I'm just kind of saying it balances out in the end and is worth the same incredibly high rating still at the end of the day um so for me uh as this album being my choice i was obviously very excited i still listen to uh the sound of the life of the mind constantly from ben folds five um i think that he's definitely he's always been around he's always been making music but there i feel like there's this resurgence of ben folds at least within the last three to five years of him kind of expanding and trying new things and getting out there and embracing social media culture and i feel like this album is um almost perfect to me for what i'm looking for in an album because while i hear what john's saying about the separation between uh the first eight tracks and the last three but that was intentional. They were never going to blend. That was never an intention. That was never going to be a consideration. So to hurt it for that seems unfair in this specific case because they're supposed to be separate. I guarantee he wrote this concerto. He wanted to put it on an album. So he worked with chamber musicians to create something that would be related to it without them being narratively the same. So for me, I don't, I don't think it should be penalized for that. Anyway... That said, about the album as a whole, I feel like emotionally I'm taken all over like I was on their last record and on a lot of my favorite records that I rate highly. The the moments, I agree with Steve, the moments are palpable and powerful, but I think songs as a whole are equally as palpable and powerful. Um, I think that's how Ben Folds works. He looks to connect with you on an emotional level. He's very vulnerable, and I like vulnerable artists. 
where my ratings go, I mean, the more vulnerable, the better. It increases the rating for me because that's the lead is I want to connect on an emotional level. I'm not going to go at length about individual things. We talked at length about the album as a whole. But I can't, I can't rate this anything less than I rated their last work because it's just, to me, this is exactly what I wanted from a Ben Folds album with classical leanings. It's a five. It's my first five of this year. It's my first five in a while because I just I can't imagine anything better from him on this. Honestly, the schizophrenia of the first track is a personal taste thing to me. I guarantee there are plenty of people who can remember each individual part and get completely wrapped up in it. So for me, this is my first five. I'm pretty confident of 2015 and uh, the first one in a while. It's it's absolutely I just on a whole I the flaws are so tiny. I can't even begin to to worry about it. Actually, you guys have probably convinced me that I'm probably rating it a little bit low. Uh, I guess I'm on board with Steve, a 4.7. Only because I think I kind of discredited the, the infusion of the old and the new together with, with that very specific, just enjoyable nature of, of what Ben does when he really you know puts his mind to an idea. He, he did something that's pretty special musically, and I guess I discredited it a little bit too much. Um, so yeah, four point seven. Okay, I guess, I guess we're on the same page now. I guess, I guess I'll leave it at that. I don't know. Check my year in review. Everyone at the, we, end, of the, at the end of the year, we always change these things when we sit with an album for a while. Um, I, I was thinking we would talk about something that a conversation that John was kind of left out of because Steve was featured on our autographs at, uh, episode, but we did talk at length on the other show on our, our website, Crash Course Autographs, when we interviewed Joe Mastropiro, who's the manager of Barnes & Nobles, when we were there for Vinyl Day live. But I thought maybe we'd take some time here to talk a little more about this resurgence of vinyl records in a digital marketplace, especially since a lot of them are including digital versions of the music, as if to say, here's your collector's item, and here now you can actually listen to it as well. Actually, one of the most curious things is over the last year, Vinyl has seen about a 50% increase in sales, and it's not even people buying this stuff to listen to it. I mean, one of the first things you, you tout about vinyl is that it, the warm sound, the warm nature. There is something that is identifiably vinyl when you listen to it. But people are buying it to have it, to showcase it, mm -hmm. to put it up on the wall in a lot of ways like like you kind of used to back it, in like the 70s and piece. 80s. When it, it's the sort of thing you frame. I mean, I recently actually got a copy of Meet the Beatles, the first album, in pretty damn good condition, hanging on my wall. Nicely framed, glass and everything. It looks gorgeous. I actually, when I was researching what my choice was for next week, I came across the fact that Rush has re-released every single one of their albums again on vinyl in just the last month, which is kind of ridiculous, but it's Rush, so maybe you'll see something like that. But as I'm going deeper, ACDC's doing it, Grateful Dead's doing it, a lot of these classic rock bands, or not quite classic rock, a little more contemporary, they're redoing that. They're putting out vinyl again, and it was kind of curious, so I started looking into it. It may have taken a while, to be yeah. honest, before this like finally caught on in a big way, but once you realize that it, it's it's one of the most obvious you know, marketing campaigns out there, when, whenever any new 
form of media takes over, then of course every band is going to want to get on board because that's going to be the new thing. Well, ironically enough, now the new thing is the old thing. Yeah. It's even to the point where uh, figures supposedly are for digital media at 2.3 billion a year in sales. Vinyl is is actually one-tenth of that. Well, it's it's also, I mean, I talked about this Referring back to autographs again, like collecting things, like um, I spoke to Paul Mattingly of uh, Matt and Mattingly's Ice Cream Social, um, which was a recent uh, Crash Course to Autographs episode, and he talks about his collection of Star Wars stuff and figurines and all this stuff. Collecting is more accessible now because there are so many channels to get this stuff, and there's so many places Amazon, to get this stuff. Amazon, eBay, and get even shipped directly too. You know, you don't have to spy on eBay anymore because you can buy some of them in a lot of the stuff in stores now. It's more common. But I think a big thing about vinyl that's made it more accessible is back in the day, you needed a record player to listen to vinyl. Period. End of story. Didn't matter if it was collector's piece. But now all vinyl records, or just about all vinyl records, come with that iTunes digital download or that Bandcamp digital download, and it's because. They want you to have this this beautiful piece. You know, there's something be- beautiful about the way records are made, and they want you to have access to the music if you don't have a record player and you just want a collector piece. But also, vinyl isn't as expensive to make anymore. It's you know, fairly cheap compared it, to what it used to be. Right. You know, and considering the technology of 3D printers, I imagine at some point in the next decade, indie artists are going to be printing their own vinyl records. That was one very interesting question we actually got uh, from a a. a person in our guest audience um, yeah. at that episode episode 28 and uh you know will 3d printers eventually like take over are these things gonna disappear it's gonna be completely in the hands of of the people now just oh, make my own record <laughs> you know that's already the way it is with digital but could that enter the vinyl market who knows i mean it's interesting i mean take and i think i brought this up that on that episode as well um painless parker who's a multi-guest of this podcast um he hand makes all of his albums he he obviously burns the CDs, but then the envelopes he hand folds and he does stamp work and calligraphy, and, and they're beautiful. Mm. To think that someone who's very, you know, homebrewed can do that with vinyl also someday would be really cool to see what he could come up with. Wax seals and that kind of stuff. I think it'd be really at that point, awesome. At that point, we're going to extend the terminology from homebrew and grassroots into uh, deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, there are already people out there creating programs to create vinyl records with a 3D printer. Right now, the prohibitive cost is the fact that in order to get a 3D printer that could create even a small vinyl record is very expensive right. to make something that big and can handle the correct materials. Sure. They made As a car the, recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw about that. Yeah. So but we, know the, we know it's there. It's coming, yeah. It's just when the technology gets inexpensive enough, I mean, I'll be able, it'll be amazing to be able to go, yeah, I may not have the original, but I got Sgt. Pepper's on vinyl, or maybe it's some sort of new plastic composite, blah, 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 but I have it in that physical vinyl idea. Well, when you think about it, like when I was in high school, because I'm older than you folks, um, and I assume a lot of our listeners, because why not? It's fun. I'll assume I'm old. Um, (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Who told you that? Um... (laughs) But I remember in high school asking a friend to burn me CDs because I couldn't burn them. Nobody had a CD burner yet. Like, it was so uncommon. And he burned me several albums because, like, I had no way to get them. I had no way to download them. And even if I did download them, I had no way to burn them. It was like a, a commodity. And I feel like vinyl is in that place now, but it'll eventually get to the same thing where you'll be able to just make them yourselves. And I, I'm actually excited for that. I mean, imagine being able to release the greatest hits of Crash Chords on a vinyl record. Oh, God. <laughs> 
one of the coolest parts about all this this resurgence of vinyl is young people are the bulk of what's being introduced to this community. Young people, and I'm talking 25 and younger, seem to be the ones that are latching onto it most because of everything that is associated with vinyl. We've talked about this at length, how it's just, it feels in a lot of ways more real than a lot of CDs or digital products. But there's also uh, individuals uh, such as Amanda Gasset, which I think is how to pronounce it. If I'm butchering it, correct me. She, she actually created instructions and prototyped for 3D printed records on the open source blog, Instructables. Not only that, there's now a actual store in London that is full-fledged a 3D vinyl print shop, which is phenomenal. Where you bring your music and they print it on a vinyl for you? Yeah, that, that sort of idea. Or they just print out vinyls for you while you wait. Do you want a record? You order the record, sit there, and get it. I wish we had that answer at our disposal during the, uh, the guest questions. Yeah. Um, well, this is extremely new. This is within the last few weeks. Okay. So, oh, okay. So it so didn't good. exist then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of just new ideas starting to come into, uh, into music through new uses of technology, which we've talked about a lot of times. Just how we're te- technology changing. Well, technology, the newest stuff seems to be letting us take a step back. Sort of. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. I, I personally, I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm a collector. It's no secret. Like, I'm trying at this point to call my CD collection and put them in books because they just take up so much space. Vinyl records also the same thing. But there's something about thumbing through a stack of vinyl records in a record shop that it's just like going feels... Through, it's like going through books or yeah. comics or something like that. You know, in a lot of ways, you know there's going to be a story because it's not just the record you get yeah. in many cases. It's, it's the inserts and all the, the art and all the various pages in the booklet or the fold-out or all the things associated with it. Even more important than that is the insurance that gives you because not to go all doomsday on you but if anything ever ever happened where we would suddenly be without power you know for long stretches of time some horrific human cataclysm where we had to sort of restart a little bit and it would be a very long haul to get back to where we are today then the having something physical and non-digitized is pretty important uh, because it can retain it for, well, we assume, you know, many, many thousands of years. Of course, digital reproduction, that'll retain it as well, but then you need to reproduce the same exact kinds of machines, the exact same kinds of machines with the same exact uh, specifications, you know, the same kinds of computers, the same software. And that's almost, that's really, really challenging to decode. We already have that problem today. Imagine having to deal with this in like millions of years and try to understand how to read a CD. We already have this problem today with, like, outmoded uh, forms. I, don't ask me off the top of my head. I think I actually mentioned it in that episode, so <laughs> go back to that episode, and I think I mentioned it there. But there are already out, outmoded forms of, of uh, you know, audio production or, or data production that just, you know, they're done. And the companies that originally made them, they've lost the specification. They went out of business. Yeah. Like, it, it's, we think of everything as being so permanent. But it's, it's not. It disappears after time. If someone doesn't talk about it, this is why, you know, great musicians, great artists will sometimes go undiscovered. We we have the, the pretense of thinking it's like, well, then they didn't work hard enough. But really, it's just if they didn't get the right word of mouth, there's there's no saving grace. There's no one thing to, to you know, bring them through posterity. 
but vinyls is something that can actually be fairly easily reverse engineered, which is why they did put them on the Voyager spacecraft for aliens to find, because it's pretty simple. Vibrations. You know, all you need to do, and all we need to do is just write down, all right, this is the speed at which you play it at. And and then you'll pretty much hear the way humans sound. So yeah, that's, that's why I love vinyls. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I feel like that's very conclusionary, so why continue to debate? Um, <laughs> that's right, I just invoked the posterity on you. There you go, you posterity me? I posterity your posterior. Um. Can All right, I? moving on. Yeah. Please. <laughs> um, Steve, will you kindly read our fan mail from this week? We actually have a fan mail. That's right. What are we at, like 1 in 10 now, maybe? Yeah. 1 in 10 is real and legit person? Sometimes a little less, but yeah, it comes and goes. So I just want to give a shout-out to Jessica Vota, um, one of the scoops from the uh, Ice Cream Social, um, who I got to hang out with on my honeymoon when I had met Matt, Jacob, and Paul. She sent us a request, which Steve will now read. Hello, Matt Storm et al. Like a little Latin influence there. I'm a new listener, so I don't know if you usually review a lot of metal, but I have a new album from my favorite metal band, Huntress, for you to check out. If you go to the band's Twitter account, at Huntress Kills, you should be able to find all the details. Their third studio album is released today, today at the time she wrote it, being uh, September 25th, called Static. But I highly recommend their first album, Spell Eater, and their second album, Starbound Beast, as well. Rock on, Jessica Vota. So thank you, Jessica, for reaching out. We appreciate the recommendation. Um, we do have another recommendation in the queue ahead, but we'll hopefully get to that in early November, uh, just because we try not to bombard ourselves with too many fan requests. We try and keep a schedule going. But right. thank, thank you so much for writing, and uh, assured I will tweet at you when we are getting closer to um, actually doing it so you can check it out. I did sneak a peek at the first album spell eater that was pretty neat cool well definitely then listeners go check that one out since uh, we probably won't review that on the show but give it a listen uh give them all a listen why not <laughs> it's music expose yourself yes that's kind of our, our mo words phrasing never mind no we're not doing phrasing anymore oh we're not doing phrasing anymore no archie doesn't do it anymore uh, okay fair enough um so our next pick is john's pick um so what do you have for us john I have the second release of a band that made waves a few years ago and has been kind of quiet and has one of my favorite little weird songs, Sale. The album is run by the band AWOL Nation. I've actually talked about Sale a few times. I keep reminding Steve what it sounds like and he keeps forgetting. <laughs> I, I really don't know it. <laughs> it's They're an, an electronic rock band that, sort of the exact antithesis of what we listen to today. They love new technology, new stuff, new sounds, infusing everything together. Um, I even wanted to test this because I was going through like 40, 50 albums today and yesterday just trying to figure out an album. And there was little tidbits here that seemed to intrigue me. And one of the big things was... Everybody kept saying the same thing. If you about enjoyed this, this album. and other album analyses, to topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords podcast really on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. Fair enough. I mean, more so media, also like, subscribe to Matt's one on one interview series, so Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also, receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going. Music is life, and life is and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.